0: On this episode of Conspiracy Unlimited, a history of UFOs in America as seen through the eyes of U.S. presidents.
1: By the time Eisenhower ascended to the presidency, we had already kept one live E.T. from the crash at Roswell.
0: This podcast is brought to you by international star registry buying a unique and romantic valentine's day gift for that special someone can be incredibly difficult it's a delicate balance of finding a thoughtful gift that isn't too expensive but tells people that you really care and let's face it the same old flowers and candy just isn't special imagine counting down the days to february 14th dreaming of romance knowing you chose the perfect valentine's day gift International Star Registry lets you name an actual star in the sky after your special someone. It's the most unique Valentine's Day gift of all time. This year, put love in the air. Name a star after someone you love. They'll remember it forever and never forget your special gift. The address is getarealstar.com. Getarealstar.com. To give someone the gift of a real star in the sky that address again getarealstar.com
2: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett Pursuing the truth wherever it leads Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett.
0: Last weekend, I was back in my hometown, Brantford, Ontario. Not the uh, fictional town of Brantford, New Hampshire in the movie Jumanji, but the one and only Brantford. And I was there to see my mom and uh, take my boys to see their grandma. And I also got together with some of my former middle-class schoolmates from 40 years ago, along with our grade-A teacher. And I hadn't seen some of these people in 40 years or maybe 35 and we met at the historic Brantford Club which is a members-only club and it used to be very exclusive for men only uh, where the movers and shakers of Brantford, lawyers, businessmen, politicians would gather and smoke cigars I imagine, drink brandy, play some pool. Now of course all are welcome to join and in the, uh, the, the seating area where we were was a portrait of the great Winston Churchill. And it turns out, as I learned, Churchill actually visited the Brantford Club back in 1901 at the tender age of 24. And we got to see the guest book uh, where Churchill signed. Of course, it was under glass, but very cool. And I don't know if, if Churchill ever saw an unidentified flying object or maybe a Foo fighter during the war. I'll have to look into that. But I'll tell you what, a lot of world leaders have seen them, from Alexander the Great to U.S. presidents. And in his new book, Bill Burns turns his attention to the Oval Office for a unique view of UFOs in America, and more specifically, what America's presidents from Washington to Obama have witnessed and believed. Most of us know, for example, that that Washington was heavily involved with the secret society, the Freemasons. But how many of us know about George Washington's UFO sighting during the terrible winter at Valley Forge and how the experience guided his future? Well, that's where we're heading over the next 45 minutes or so. William J. Burns is the New York Times best-selling author of The Day After Roswell and many other books including the Skyhorse titles Doctor Feelgood, Wounded Minds, and The Big Book of UFO Facts, Figures and Truth. He was the consulting producer, writer and lead host of the History Channel's UFO Hunters, and the publisher of UFO Magazine from 1998 through 2014. And he is the co-author, along with Joel Martin, of UFOs and the White House. What did our presidents know, and when did they know it? Bill Burns, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you?
1: I'm feeling fine. I'm feeling fine. Thank you for having me tonight.
0: And congratulations to you and Joel Martin on UFOs in the White House. What did our presidents know and when did they know it? I think most people, certainly the sort of the uninitiated in this arena, would say that presidents knew about UFOs or at least became aware of UFOs. Back in the 40s, probably during the, the, um, the uh, Roosevelt administration. But as you document in UFOs in the White House, encounters go back as, uh, to the very origins of the nation, back to Valley Forge and, and uh, General Washington. Talk to me about General Washington, that, that cold, blustery evening at Valley Forge. What did he see?
1: And these are Washington's own words. So um, that's the fascinating thing about uh, the Washington's Journal. Uh, Valley Forge that winter, um, the uh, Continental Army couldn't enter Philadelphia. Uh, The British held Philadelphia, and despite all their victories um, in crossing the Delaware and driving out the Hessians, uh, they were stuck in, in winter quarters, and they were not getting paid. So these were people who were essentially, it's, it's one thing to call it a volunteer army, but they didn't volunteer not to be paid. <laughs> Their crops had languished because this was winter time. They were short on food. Um, they didn't have any provisions. And so Washington was actually looking, this was in the winter of that winter in Valley Forge, Washington was looking at the unthinkable. Which was if his army simply faded away, all the leaders of the revolution uh, would face the death penalty; they'd be hanged. So Washington didn't know. So he goes into so he goes into uh, the woods, and he was a very devout man. He was a Christian, but he was a deist. Yes, and um, <clears throat> he he went into the woods to pray, and he saw this. G- glowing green orb hanging in front of him. Now, for Washington, he didn't call it a flying saucer. He didn't call it a UFO. He wouldn't have known those terms at all. For him, it was simply an apparition, a vision, but but he described it. And out of that orb, this this white figure appears, and the white figure speaks to him, calls him Son of the Republic. Now, you can imagine that... This might have been in Washington's imagination, he might have been having a a psychic vision, he might have been having a whole bunch of things, a seizure, he wasn't an epileptic, but um, whatever it was, this particular vision gave him portents of the future, laid out the history of America through the Civil War, and said, "You you will become a republic, you will win this war, you will be an independent country. (laughs) that was the first vision the second vision Washington had was a little more complicated than that during the uh, French and Indian War uh, Washington as a lieutenant colonel in the Virginia colonial militia was fighting for the British, he was a British officer and Washington um, uh, accompanied the main British force General Braddock to, into Pennsylvania where they crossed the Monongahela River to take Fort Duquesne from the French. Very important fort. Anybody from Pittsburgh would know, what does Fort Duquesne cover? The Three Rivers, the right. Three River Stadium. Right. Right? That's where the Allegheny and the Monongahela meet to form the Ohio River. Very important junction because it opens up the whole south. So anybody that held the Three Rivers, which is what the purpose of Fort Duquesne, Anybody that held the three rivers held the key to the American, to the North American heartland. Well, since the French were coming down from Canada, and since um, the British wanted to control the French, both sides wanted to keep Fort Duquesne. In that battle, to cut to the chase, the British were fighting Indians. They really didn't know how to fight Native Americans. Um, Native Americans didn't fight like Europeans. They picked the British off from ambush. It was guerrilla warfare.
0: Guerrilla warfare. It was.
1: That was how guerrilla warfare started on the North American continent. Washington was an Indian fighter. So he knew how Indians fought. So his team, his, his troops, the militia, accompanied Braddock across the Monongahela. Braddock was hit. Washington leaped to his side. Commandeered a cart, commandeered a unit of soldiers to take Braddock out of the river, take him back to British lines. The British lost the battle um, at Fort Duquesne. An Indian had Washington dead in his sights at that battle. And here's where he, he was chief. And he said that he was about to, he was using his flintlock, he was going to pull the trigger, and he saw the great spirit descend on Washington, and he took that as a sign. That he should not kill him. Years later, during the revolution at Valley Forge, Washington's second revelation, he saw that chief that he knew. The problem was that chief had died a
0: few <laughs> days before. <laughs> now this, so those, is those this, are
1: Washington's visitations at Valley Forge.
0: Is this a ghost story or a UFO tho- story, though, Bill?
1: Well, that's the question. Is it, is it a ghost story, is it a UFO story, or is it both?
0: Right, right. Or an angelic, some sort of an angelic encounter.
1: Um, and again, is it, is it a, do we add angelic encounter to the mix? Because this was clearly, when Washington saw the glowing orb, when he saw little figures jumping out of the orb, when he saw this creature, this vision, this creature, Tell him the future, was that an alien visitation or was that something else? And who were the little creatures jumping out of the green orb?
0: Indeed, indeed. Between Washington and, let's say, FDR, because things obviously start to heat up in the 1940s, and we'll talk specifically about Roosevelt in a, mo- in a moment, but between Washington and Roosevelt, uh, which which president sort of jumps out at you, that, maybe that surprised you, that, that, that uh, either made mention of UFOs or reportedly saw a UFO?
1: Well, it was Jefferson. <clears throat> I mean, for me, it was Thomas Jefferson, because what he did... <coughs> This is a person who's the vice president. Now, when Washington had his visitation, America was not a country, so Washington was not the president. When Jefferson reported his visitation to the um, American Philosophical Society, Jefferson was vice president. This was 1801. This is right before he was going to run against um, John Adams. And for Jefferson... To confer on that UFO sighting. This is a major. This is a a huge, major UFO sighting. A, a sighting of a ship the size of a house hmm. landing in Louisiana. That's how uh, that's how big this was. It was a house size. It wasn't a, a dancing light that could be mistaken for anything. It was a, a huge house-sized craft. And Jefferson reported that and actually gave his endorsement to this person, Dunbar, who um, reported the sighting, who wrote the sighting, to America's... The American Philosophical Society was akin to the Royal Society. It it, it was American royalty. It was the top philosophers, natural scientists uh, in America. And the fact that Jefferson, who was himself Um, A kind of a renaissance figure. But Besides that, for him to go there with this letter about a UFO sighting, that to me was very impressive.
0: I'll say. I mean, imagine a president endorsing something like that today. He'd be he'd be run out of office or they'd be saying he was delusional
1: right i mean and of course we had those issues in our book on dr field but that's a whole other book right. about a delusional president but the point is that in, in this particular case none of these presidents even abraham lincoln now this is more of a spiritualistic ghost story but even abraham lincoln he and and um uh, his predecessor franklin pierce they routinely had uh... uh... Um, they routinely had mediums, clairvoyants, come to the White House to give readings.
0: Right, right. Mary Todd Lincoln it's was uh,
1: it's an astounding thing. That was sure. actually I mean, yes, it was a parlor game in the mid nineteenth century. But also for Lincoln, do you know one piece of, 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 of American policy that came out of that out of those um uh, clairvoyant sessions, the invocation of spirits?
3: No, according tell me. To the
1: person who was doing it, tell me. It was me. the Emancipation Proclamation. Ah, you see, the Republican platform of 1860 was a pledge to leave the Southern economy, the economies of the Southern states alone. Even though it was an abolitionist platform, in terms of, in terms of there shouldn't be slavery, we're opposed to slavery, slavery should be abolished. The platform itself advocated no protocols for abolishing slavery. In fact, it was just the opposite. The republican platform was for the preservation of the southern economies that were plantation economies that were slave-based economies so here you had lincoln running on a platform that advocated two separate things two actually mutually incompatible things now he had to sign a proclamation that would free the, the slaves from forced labor allow them to join the army basically to destroy the southern economy that was based on their labor so that the South would collapse and be forced to capitulate in the Civil War. That was Lincoln's plan. But it would have been a violation of his own promise. This was this before he ran for a second term would have been a violation of his own promise. So he had to call in his clairvoyant Nitty Coburn, who invoked the spirit of Daniel Webster, the ah, Great right, right. Order. Daniel Webster. And Daniel Webster urged Lincoln to sign it. Lincoln signed it. And thus, there was the Emancipation Proclamation. There was the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, abolishing involuntary servitude and badges of slavery. And um, that was Lincoln's presidency.
0: That's remarkable. Uh, I, I want to move ahead to, uh, to Roosevelt. And this this famous um, memo between General George C. Marshall and Roosevelt, where and and I guess the the, the uh, jury is still out in terms of the veracity of this. You can weigh in on absolutely.
1: It, that uh, that's part of the problem with a lot of these. There really is no veracity that that you can ascertain, except for the fact that it looks real.
0: Right. But here's the memo. Here's what General George C. Marshall says. Headquarters has come to the determination that the mystery airplanes are, in fact, not earthly, and according to secret intelligence sources, that are in all probability of interplanetary origin. That's U.S. Army Chief of Staff General George C. Marshall to Roosevelt in March of forty-two. Roosevelt writes back, supposedly, um urging finding of practical uses for the atomic secrets learned from the study of celestial devices. And then in another memo, he writes, coming to grips with the reality that our planet is not the only one harboring intelligent life in the universe. What do you think of those uh, documents? That's the frightening one. Yeah.
1: That's the frightening one because by 1942, Roosevelt had already been briefed on nuclear power. He was briefed by the group that would become, like uh, the Oppenheimer group. That group, had already briefed Roosevelt. And the only reason they were briefing him on that is that they knew, and now we know, that the Germans were already working on that because this whole field of nuclear fusion really had been developed in Germany by German scientists. And so they knew that there was a group of German scientists already working on nuclear weapons. They knew by 1942 because the british had taken surveillance photos of these i was at the base that's how i know um that the germans were developing in, um rockets ballistic missiles well they didn't know they were ballistic but they knew they were some kind of rocket dev- um, uh, 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 device well these are the v2s because british bombers had um um reconned Pienamunde, as early as 1942, and they saw these rockets, and they said, "My, you know, if, 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 if Germany can launch these, and in fact they destroyed Pinamanda, as a result the Germans had to move to the Baltic Sea, but when they destroyed Pinamanda, it, it was to preclude Germany from uh, doing missile attacks on Great Britain, and if they had developed nuclear weapons, can you imagine the types of uh, devastation they would have reached, they would have destroyed Britain. Worse, in 1944, the Germans launched a U-boat attack with launchers on the four decks of submarines, of uh, U-boats, against New York City and Washington. We know that because German subs turned up in uh, the Delaware River at the end of the war. Wow. So... So, I mean, imagine a missile attack, a V-1 or V-2 missile attack on the United States. Imagine if they were nuclear weapons.
0: Now, Hitler wouldn't
1: That's have... That's how close Germany was. Yeah, That's hit, how close and he to, wouldn't have,
0: fact, Hitler wouldn't have hesitated.
1: Absolutely. Well, we didn't hesitate. I mean, you're absolutely right. That's exactly the point. We would have had a destroyed planet. Now, that second statement by Roosevelt is really telling. Also... The fact that Roosevelt had been briefed on Foo Fighters, and that's what Marshall's talking about, Foo Fighters, in that these planes. Right. These are dancing lights. The Germans, did, we thought at first they were a Nazi secret weapon, but they never attacked our planes. They were almost like little, like balls surveilling our planes, and it was, um, we thought they were a German weapon. The Germans thought they were an Allied weapon. Hmm and we named him after french obviously fear for firefighters but they were not just over the skies of europe they were also in the south pacific right right because there's a story of a b-29 that fired on one and blew it up into a million pieces so in fact um, either life or look magazine had a story about food fighters or back in the nineteen forties so that's very important for roosevelt and the fact that <clears throat> Roosevelt probably knew from British intelligence that had penetrated German intelligence that the Germans um, were working on UFO secrets. They were developing rocket planes. They were developing all sorts of of, of exotic weapons based on technology they'd recovered from the crash of a UFO in um, the Black Forest in the 1930s. Uh, They had this technology. In fact,. Their chief rocket scientist, Hermann Oberth, the chief, this is the man who was, in some cases, the father of German rocketry. He trained Werner von Braun. Hmm. He said, We were helped by people from other worlds.
0: Remarkable. Remarkable. Roosevelt, uh, you know, growing up in New York and uh, the, the Hudson River is is a known sort of a corridor uh, for UFO sightings. Lawrence Rockefeller, of course, uh, talked about UFOs along the Hudson. John Lennon had a famous sighting of a UFO on the Hudson. Did did Roosevelt ever ever have his own sighting? Perhaps along the Hudson River.
1: We don't know about any sightings Roosevelt ever reported, either Teddy or Franklin. But what's so fascinating about Roosevelt is that, I mean, again, I'm lapsing into the spiritual thing, but when he died, he died in Georgia. He died not in the arms of his wife, Eleanor, but he died in the arms of his mistress. And when he died, his dog, Fela, was on the couch. And... Taylor seemed to be looking at something rising out of Roosevelt's body, and followed it all the way out to the ceiling and hmm. out the window.
0: It's Remarkable, a really strange
1: thing. <laughs> but Roosevelt was, but, but Roosevelt was briefed on this technology, and one of the reasons I think he was still one of our greatest presidents is that in when he came to power in in the, in the nineteen thirties, this was right as the depression was because he took office in nineteen thirty three. He was elected in thirty two. So, uh, Herbert Hoover had one whole term in office. Remember, he was inaugurated in 1929, and the stock market and and the stock market crashed only a few months later, right. October. Right. So here's a case where Hoover actually presided, and this is what drove George W. Bush. I can I can I know that Hoover presided over the entire country, and then the world falling into this phenomenal economic depression. And he watched it happen. And as he watched it happen, he kept on saying, well, the economy is going to right itself. This is exactly what's going to happen. And the fact is it didn't. So when Franklin Roosevelt came to power in 1933, banks had failed, companies had gone out of business, foreclosures were on the rise, and so he had to navigate between two different extremes of socialism. On the right, he had to navigate between national Socialism because by the 1930s, because Germany was in a worse situation, Hitler was on the rise, and the Weimar Republic was teetering. On the left, the communists were on the rise. And he had to navigate against Stalin, because um, uh, so much of the American labor movement had turned to communism. So that's what Roosevelt had to do. So the, the thought that he could actually have a world war to end this Was astounding. And so the technology of UFOs and food fighters and nuclear weapons really drove policy in that administration.
0: Remarkable. You know what drives me, Bill? My desire to live a long and healthy life. And I know a lot of people feel the same way, but it starts with what we put in our bodies. And our bodies deserve the best. But how do we choose the best nutritional supplements or even know what's in them? Life extension has been helping people stay healthy for over 35 years. Just like with the foods you eat, the quality, purity, and potency of the ingredients in your nutritional supplements really do matter. Life Extension Supplements set the gold standard for supporting weight loss, heart, brain, bone, joint, eye skin, sexual health, and so much more. Their formulas are based on the latest scientific research and clinically validated dosages. That's one reason why 98% of their customers recommend Life Extension to their friends and family. Every Life Extension product is backed by a total satisfaction guarantee. The bottom line? Life Extension is the brand you can trust with your health. Check out Life Extension products with special savings. Visit SmartClickIdea.com. That's SmartClickIdea.com. SmartClickIdea.com.
2: As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess you better say it because of Richard. You know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. (laughs) Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: Bill Burns, the author of UFOs and the White House, What Did Our Presidents Know and When Did They Know It, is with us. Uh, on, to, uh, on to Dwight Eisenhower. And uh, I, I don't know if you cover this in the book, but there is the legendary meeting of an, an alien delegation, I believe it was at uh, was it Edwards Air Force Base.
1: It was Muroc, yes. Yeah. And, and it is covered in the book because we have a letter in the book from one of the people accompanying the Eisenhower Party who writes to this um, I think it's a Presbyterian bishop in California. Yes. Bishop Light. yes. And he writes to him and he describes this meeting in such unbelievable terms. And we actually printed the letter in the book as public domain. Any folks can read it. And to me that's that's a level of corroboration. And at the meeting, yeah. Eisenhower and the extraterrestrials that have already been here they already crashed at Roswell. They were already crashed at San Augustine. Now there's a formal... They've already um, intruded over the skies of Washington, D.C. They were the summer of the saucers of 1952, yes. right before the um, November election. And so Eisenhower comes to office in 1953. He basically gets, his, gets, gets our butts out of Korea. That's the first thing he does. Just get the hell out of Korea. This is an unwinnable war. Sign an armistice and just get it over with because he's a general, he knows what's unwinnable. Then he negotiates what's in effect an open skies agreement with extraterrestrials. Mm. It's an open skies agreement. You can surveil us as long as you don't kill us, as long as you don't hurt us. We're not going to fire on you. So it's a surveillance exchange, and that's the model for the later open skies agreement that Eisenhower negotiates with Khrushchev after the U-2.
0: Remarkable. Uh, Are there any uh, documents to be found in the presidential library, in Eisenhower's presidential library, that might corroborate this in terms of where he was on that date? It was supposedly an emergency dental appointment or something.
1: Well, yes. What happened was, in order to facilitate this, I think they were in Palm Springs, and it was supposed to be a golf tournament or a golf thing. And Eisenhower had to leave on some golfing thing. But instead of going to a golfing tournament, <clears throat> he left Mamie and Mamie Dowd's mother, Mrs. Dowd, there. He splits off to Mirok, which is no small drive, by the way. Uh, or it's no small journey. It's, it's really a jump across uh, a couple of counties in California. He goes there, has the meeting, and comes back. And there is no record of Eisenhower's travel.
0: Hmm. Fascinating. The other legend associated with the Eisenhower administration is the um, Stranger at the Pan- Pentagon, Valiant Thor, this benevolent ET that supposedly took up residence in the Pentagon in the in the late nineteen fifties. Stayed there for three years. Supposedly had regular meetings in the White House with Eisenhower. Uh, w- w- what do you what do you make of that whole story? Is that just lore? Well,
1: it is. I think it's lore. I think it's lore because on the one hand. Richard Nixon is the person who had the most communication with Val Thor. And Nixon, by the time he becomes president, is so impressed with ETs and alien culture and stuff like that, that he actually takes Jackie Gleason, the comedian Jackie Gleason, to see an E.T. at Homestead Air Force Base in Florida. I mean, that's the funny part about this. For for Now, What we know about Nixon and the Eisenhower administration as vice president is that uh, we know a couple of things. We know that that by the time Eisenhower ascended to the presidency, we had already at least um, kept one live ET from the crash at Roswell. We know that. We know that the army... Um, had we know that ET material had already gone to Wright Field by 1948 and we know that material had already gone to from the UFO had already gone to the Army office of R&D at the Pentagon by 1940 by the end of 1947 <clears throat> so we know that Eisenhower as an as a retiring army general and then as the president of Columbia University would have known all of this he was not out of the loop. Uh, it's not clear how much he knew. But Eisenhower, I mean, just the fascinating part about Eisenhower is that people tend to look at him and like, oh, who cares? Oh, this. Oh, that. Eisenhower had an, what I consider a very powerful eight years in office, not because of what he did, but because of what he kept from happening. Hmm. Eisenhower is the first... First of all, Eisenhower comes into office in the middle of a war, the Korean War. That's, that, uh, that's first. Second, he comes into office, and there's, an ama- there's a raging debate going on about the use of nuclear weapons in Korea. Eisenhower had seen nuclear weapons. Eisenhower knew the Soviets had nuclear weapons. Eisenhower suspected the Chinese had nuclear weapons. At least they'd get them from the Soviets. So Eisenhower's main function for eight years is to avoid a war. I mean, you realize that's the important thing. Now, we take that for granted. But but here's a person coming into office on on the sword tip of a nuclear war, Japan and the potential of a nuclear war in Korea. And he has got to keep that peace. As part of keeping that peace, he comes into office. There's an actual invasion of flying saucers, an alien invasion over Washington. Mm -hmm. We had shot them down. They had shot our planes down. There was actually aerial warfare going on between the U.S. and extraterrestrials over Washington, D.C. Eisenhower comes into office in this environment. And the first thing he does is, okay, talk to these. What do they want? What do they want? Why are they here? Mm Why are they? That's what he's got to find out. Again, he is an army general. He's not not looking for um, a political leverage. What he's looking for is he knows how deadly World War II was. He knows how World War II ended. He knows that Korea at this point was a useless war that didn't have to be fought. He knows this. Now... He's facing a war with the extraterrestrials. Worse, he's fighting a cold war with the Soviets. And imagine, if, imagine, like the French and Indian War. We, this time, we're the Indians.
0: Right, right. Any any paper trail uh, in terms of interesting documentation during Eisenhower's administration pointing to his his knowledge of of aliens visiting uh, our planet?
1: Yes, yes, a lot of it. There is. First of all, the MJ-12 papers. Mm -hmm. They're the Eisenhower briefing papers that the secret group that started under Truman after the Roswell crash, the secret group, either Magic 12 or MJ-12, whatever informal group that was, came up with briefing for President Eisenhower as he's taking office in 1953. Now, Eisenhower had his own UFO experience the year before When he was um, one of the observers for the first NATO nuclear exercise, which was in the North Sea Operation Mainbrace, now Eisenhower was on the bridge for Operation Mainbrace, and he saw an object, basically a a a USO, um, an underwater, um, an unknown submerged object, fly out of the water into the air and off into the atmosphere. Now, the whole bridge crew in the FDR is watching this, and Eisenhower says, okay, keep this to yourselves. I don't want anybody talking about this, and he goes back below decks. Hmm. So Eisenhower knew what UFOs were be- be- before the uh, Muroc Edwards Air Force Base Conference. He knew what UFOs were when there was a, this invasion over the skies of Washington, D.C. and West Virginia and the whole Chesapeake Bay. He knew what they were. I want to uh, so, go ahead, so finish that. So, the MJ12 briefing papers, although he had seen them with his own eyes and knew what they were, they told him what the government thought they were. And so now he is fully briefed with those papers. So there's an incredible amount of documentation during the Eisenhower administration.
0: Is there a book, you know, that's seen in uh, American Treasure 2 with Nicolas Cage, that scene where the president supposedly is handed a book, not one with the nuclear codes in it, but uh, sort of the, the, the UFO briefing book. What do you think of that? Do you think that book exists?
1: Well, what presidents do is they do leave briefing papers for their successors. So they always they, they write their own private letter, but the um, briefing people from the National Security Council and the president's own advisors put together a briefing paper that a president, that an outgoing president will leave for an incoming president. Now, whether UFOs are in that, Now, from what I know about how the government works with respect to uh, UFOs is that UFOs fall under special access projects. So the president doesn't necessarily get day-to-day briefings on UFOs. And that's that's what this book, uh, UFOs in the White House, is uh, meant to show. That presidents really aren't kept like day-to-day, but the big ones, like the big ones that happened during the Reagan administration or the yeah. ones that happened during the uh, Kennedy administration or the Johnson administration, those are the ones. Even the George Bush administration, they are kept up dead on those, especially when they involve military encounters. So let's just take... Um, the um, UFO encounters over Hillsdale in 1966—that would have been—that would have been during Lyndon Johnson's term. Right. Now, yes, Lyndon Johnson would have been briefed on those, as was, by the way, the local congressman Jerry Ford, who became president ah. in 1974. Ah. So, um So there is a case where, and 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 we make this point that. Um, Jerry Ford has been really—he spoke to witnesses in 1966 when he was um, the—he um, was a senior member of Congress. What he did was he wrote to the head of Project Blue Book. This is the years before. This is right before Project Blue Book is canceled. So he writes to them, and he says that they must investigate this whole UFO question, and he's including testimony. And that's in the book. You can read the testimony in that book, UFOs in the White House. He is um, including testimony from, from witnesses who have seen this, from police. In his report, in his letter to Mendel Rivers, who is the chairman of, this, of the uh, House Armed Services Committee, and he is like making this report, and <clears throat> the head of Project Blue calls it a political trick, a political hack, and, of course, that's the famous uh, incident, the Hillsdale, Michigan, issue, uh, incident of 1966, where <clears throat> J. Allen Hynek says, oh, they just saw swamp gas. Well, right, Hynek right. knew that it wasn't swamp gas. Uh, he was saying it because he was in the loop of knowing where the alien was. So um, Jerry Ford writes this letter. He becomes president when Nixon resigns in, 19, uh, in, in 1974. He becomes president. And this was um, this is the very beginning of Nixon's second term. He becomes the president, and so what Jerry Ford has promised is that he is going to release all the UFO information that the government has. He, there are two assassination attempts by the Manson gang immediately right, after Jerry
0: Ford. Right, isn't. Squeaky From.
1: Squeaky From and Elizabeth Moore. And Elizabeth Moore back to back, but both of them are members of the Manson gang. Hmm. This is like a yeah. full five years after the Manson killings in Los Angeles. Manson's in jail for the rest of his life. Why are they? Well, in the nineteen eighties, my then writing partner Joel Norris, the late Joel Norris, we were working on a book called Serial Killers A Growing Menace. And um he interviewed Manson and I he said, Well what what questions do you have for him? I said, Ask him about the, the This Jerry Ford business, why were two of his people? Manson tells Joel Norris, he says, I was working for the government. Ah. This is Charles Manson.
0: Right, right. Project Aquarius, perhaps.
1: He said he was working for the government, Mm -hmm. uh, that that he'd been given orders that for any of his gang out there, that that he had to organize two two assassination attempts on Jerry Ford. And that was a warning. But see, even Manson was set up, because that was a warning to Jerry Ford to keep his mouth shut. Right. But then, at the end of Jerry Ford's term, at the end of, uh, so then Ford, um, it's the end of his term, it's 1976. So Ford has lost the election to Jimmy Carter, but the last thing to hit Ford's desk is the report of this dogfight between an F-4 Phantom jet from Parviz Jafari and a giant UFO over the skies of Iraq. Mm -hmm. He gets that report on his desk as he's leaving office, and he gives that report. We know that Jimmy Carter read it because he's the incoming president.
0: Sure, sure. And... Carter, there's a, an interesting story attached to Carter when he asked to be briefed. Supposedly asked to be briefed on on UFOs. One of the the story goes something like this: after after the briefing takes place, one of Carter's assistants in the Oval Office witnesses the president break down and start sobbing uncontrollably. Have you heard that story?
1: No, the story that I heard was that um, his briefer was George H.W. Bush, who Mm -hmm. was the director of central intelligence. And so Carter asks... That story of Carter weeping uncontrollably, that came... I heard that in in a totally different context. Ah, I'll tell you what that is. But so Carter asks George Bush, his director of central intelligence, he gets his incoming, his presidential daily brief, um, his PDB, and then he asks George Bush to tell him what the government knows about UFOs. This is from a witness in the room. So George Bush says to President-elect Carter, this is 1976, Carter hasn't taken office yet. He says um, you ha- uh, that what the government has is on a need-to-know basis strictly. <laughs> you do not have a need-to-know But whatever you need to know is already in the National Archives and government files. And I can explain to you how to look for them in the government files without um, releasing any classified information for which you have no need to know. So that's the scene in the Oval Office. Ah, Carter, immediately upon taking office, um, he appoints someone as a liaison to develop a series of protocols for what the United Now, the only protocols the United States has, and this, this this goes back years, is from the 1960s RAND study that there will be panic in the streets right. if Americans stand out about UFOs, okay? The RAND study from the 60s is based upon an event in 1938, which was which was the War of the Worlds broadcast. Mm-hmm. Now, people think the War of the Worlds broadcast by Orson Welles in the Mercury Theater of the Air was October 31st, 1938, was, a, was just um, a, a stunt. It, it was a theater. It, it, it was the theater of radio. It wasn't. What happened was uh, the Rockefeller Foundation funds... A foundation at Princeton headed by Frank Stanton. Frank Stanton became the president of CBS. Frank Stanton is he's developing the science of the analytics. That's his side. This right. is nineteen thirties. He's developing how can mass opinion be shaped. I can take we don't have the time but I can take you back to World War One where all that started. But how mass opinion can be shaped. So what with Rockefeller Foundation money Frank Stanton funds Mercury Theater of the Air to do a dramatization of the War of the Worlds, and since Frank Stanton is at Princeton, this happens, of course, outside Princeton in the in the town of Grover Mills. Aha. Uh-huh. So, and i because I used to live in Cranberry, I, I was there.
0: It's a psyop. So, it's a psyop,
1: right? But it's a psyop before there was before there were psyops, right? I mean, that's what's so that's what's so intriguing about this. He does this. Now, there is no panic in the streets, by the way, because every 15 or so minutes, there were, the radio would break in and say, this is not real. This is a, this is a Halloween special, Mercury Theater. So people listening to it knew that this is a theatrical performance. What the people at the Rockefeller Foundation did was plant stories with the media that there was rioting in the streets.
0: Ah, that's how that happened.
1: In fact, Frank Stanton told the British—the whole story is in the book. Frank Stanton told the British newspapers that there was no rioting in the streets, that that it was markedly calm. Yet, the story of riots in the streets went to Rand in the 1960s, and that became the basis— for not disclosing anything, internal government policy, for not disclosing anything. That was part of the reason for the cover-up.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating. I did not know that. Uh, Bill, we're going to have to do a part two somewhere down the road, not uh, not too far down the road, because uh, this is uh, absolutely fascinating. And all of this is in UFOs and the White House. What did our presidents know, and when did they know it? Co-author Joel Martin. Bill, always a pleasure. Let's do it again soon.
1: Okay, thank you. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you.
0: Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Well, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to give you a heads up on what's in store for episode 26 of Conspiracy Unlimited. But, of course, it's Friday, which means the weekly draw that's coming up. But first, is weight loss on your wish list? Unfortunately, the commitment to weight loss often fades, and many people simply give up in the first 90 days. The key is having the right mindset. Getting thin and staying that way lies in our thought processes, and hypnotherapy can make all the difference. Now, clinical hypnotherapist Dr. Steve G. Jones has created a set of five audio hypnotic sessions that apply the power of hypnosis to reprogram the mind and replace bad habits with vibrant, positive new habits to help you achieve natural and long-lasting weight loss. Weight Loss Hypnotherapy really works, and it's available now at a special discount. Isn't it time to lose those extra pounds? Check out Weight Loss Hypnotherapy right now at SmartClickSavings.com. That's SmartClickSavings.com. Alright, time to reach into the old cheese puff jar. I tell you, this thing is so big I can almost crawl inside it. Hello in there. <laughs> All right. Gotta love the novelty-sized food containers at Costco. Alright, we'll stir it around. And here we go. This week's winner of volume two of my Strange Planet CD is. Uh, Sarah Duncan of San Clemente, California. All right, congratulations, Sarah. I'll drop the uh, CD in the post later today. And just a reminder, if you want to enter the draw, here's what you need to do. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done so. Then rate it and review it. Grab a screenshot of that and email it to me at richardserrett one at gmail.com richard serrat e t 1 at gmail.com and hey and be sure to include your name and mailing address. All the emails go into the uh, cheese puffs jar and I draw a winner every Friday. Good luck. Coming up on episode 26 of Conspiracy Unlimited, a victim of remote electronic torture, harassment and mind control reveals the nature of this unspeakable and invisible crime. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.
2: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com Blow your mind. That is all for now.